A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a classic big interview. This is where we dig into the vaults and choose an episode from earlier in our shows. This time, we've gone all the way back to season 2018-19 and opted for one of our and your absolute favourites. This is what I had to say about it back then. Do enjoy. So the big interview is back with another cracking guest, a guy I like, a guy who's been helpful to me during my career, but a guy who, more importantly, scored the winning goal in Arsenal's last European trophy lift, who twice won the Golden Boot for being the top scorer in the English Premier League. It's Alan Smith. During this conversation, held in beautiful circumstances in Sotwell House under glaring sun right next to Arsenal's training ground at Colney, we talk about why Alan claims powerfully that that 1989 last match of the season victory at Anfield by George Graham's Arsenal in which Alan scored and set up Mickey Thomas is the single most iconic moment in English league football is he right? he talks about George Graham the man who he says had the players a little bit frightened but who changed all of them we're going to give you a first hand explanation of how the Scot held that Arsenal squad in thrall. He's intelligent, eloquent, often very funny. He's a thoughtful man, and I guess some of his self-confidence is based on the fact that the majority of his career was very successful. Think about that league title he talked about in 89 and winning the double at Arsenal and scoring goals so regularly that he won two golden boots in the top division in England. But things weren't always smooth for him here. Alan reflects on one of the big surprises and one of the big disappointments in his career, which rests with him now, as he explains, as an embarrassment. Everything he anticipated, his partnership with the new, cocky, dynamic, funny, characterful striker at Arsenal, Ian Wright, didn't come to fruition. He dealt with it badly. He hasn't spoken about it very much. And here he explains what went wrong, how he tried to understand that subsequently, and what his relationship with Wrighty is now. It's unusual to hear Alan Smith speaking in this way because, again, think about the fact that at a time when things weren't going right for him, when he was struggling to handle it, he scored the winning goal in the last European final that Arsenal managed to lift a trophy in, only two in their entire history. And Alan scored the winner in the second one. The feeling of lifting an understrength Arsenal team in a Copenhagen stadium where it felt like a home match because of the fans who were there... The buzz of joy it gave him on the night didn't compensate for how blue he felt, how down he felt about the last three years of his career. 
This is the big interview with Alan Smudger-Smith, helping him promote his entertaining autobiography, Heads Up. Alan Smith, welcome to the big interview. Thank you. Um, I nearly said, aha, there. It was very partridge, <laughs> wasn't it? it was. <laughs> um, knowing me, knowing you. Um, everybody who listens to the big interview knows that I get a bit sloppy about things. And here we are sitting in St Albans in Sopwell House, right next door to where, for a number of years, you trained a beautiful part of the world where you must have, in your broadcasting career, I suppose, come and waited for Arsene Wenger for his interminably delayed press conferences. Generally what I'm saying, with the green trees, the beautiful grass, the sunshine, England's lovely. There was a time when, never mind playing for Arsenal and earning good money and scoring goals and being famous, actually coming to work in this part of the world must have been the best thing. Well, when you're in that bubble and you've done it all your life, I suppose you don't tend to appreciate it as much as somebody coming in on their first day might feel but I never lost sight of the fact that it was a fantastic job I was doing and you were getting paid to stay fit to play the game that you've always loved to spend hours and hours with like-minded souls teammates friends just having a laugh every day as you say out in the fresh air I never became that blasé that it, it was just you know another day in the office so to speak it was always it was always a good day when you got up. I mean, well, that's not strictly true, but when things were going well, it was always a good day, getting up, going into training, seeing the boys. It's brilliant. So the things that I was getting sloppy about, like the smell and the cut grass, which still just does it for me. Yeah. But also <laughs> the sound of the boots on, on the hard floor or whatever, that, that I, I accept you take for granted. But I knew that you would reach for the, the, the dressing room camaraderie because I know that you were fit for it and you had fun... We're talking at the moment about your Arsenal experiences, mm. not Arv Church or Leicester or England, but if you were appreciating the camaraderie and the team spirit, whatever, you were in with a bunch of blokes I think were quite different from you. We all got along great. That was, that was a feature of our time back then. Uh, different characters, but we respected each other because we were all doing jobs on the pitch. You know, if you weren't pulling your weight, if you were, had a different attitude in terms of your goals, if you were a bit selfish, then you would become ostracised. Mm. But if you had that team ethos... There was no problem at all. We accepted that some people were different to others. And, I mean, in terms of the, the group, sometimes it clicks like that. It's not something that anybody's worked on. The chemistry's right. And, I mean, I think George Graham played a big part yeah. in keeping us all together and emphasising the fact that you have to work for your mate. George is now, you know, known for being more urbane, always dressed impeccably, um, very elegant man in his attitudes and his words. Likes his tennis, been retired for a little while. But um, for those who are listening to this and don't know enough about George, explain two things about him. First of all, in what way was it possible for a manager then to kind of terrorise a group of grown men? Mm. And secondly, in London, when I was still in this country working, we used to go out to Langens, it was one of his favourite places, and Langens would always have to add on to the bill the, the tablecloths. 
because George would get a pen or a pencil out and the pepper pots and he'd be drawing arrows and the pepper pots would move. He still goes there. I saw him not long ago in there. He loves it there and they love him there. And it's great when you go in there like the world comes to pay homage. Mm. It's fabulous to be there. And the big old picture of, I don't know if it's still there, big old picture of Stamford Bridge in the days when it was a dog track. Of course, Mm. George had been playing there then. Mm. Mm. But the mad thing is, Frank McClintock always tells the famous story when they were in the dressing room after training and they were talking about the game on the Saturday and they were talking about different tactical things they might try, who's going to do what, and he'd go, put the ball away, lads, let's go and have a drink. You know, that was George back then. And Frank says, I cannot believe he became the person and the manager that he became. His personality or his kind of goals totally changed. You attribute a bit of that to Terry Venables, his, his best mate, who, who they, they got... I think Terry got married on the morning of a North London derby with George as his best man mm. and then George took him to Highbury and Arsenal to Spurs 4-0 so there's, there's yeah, a wedding changes. there's a wedding present <laughs> thought you might like that one yeah you attribute that change in George partially to Terry yeah maybe I mean I wasn't around at the time but I think George needed the work and he, he went to QPR and, and then he got the taste for it he got the bug and developed from there and became very serious about it he became a kind of a furious worker you know his, his, his work ethos go back to that phrase was uh, phenomenal um, very dedicated very single minded in becoming a success as a manager Describe George working for him and how does one man hold a firm group of footballers grown up boisterous hard nosed men in such a grip He was just one of those people that did have an aura about him you were instantly respectful and a bit frightened of him uh, that's just the way he was I suppose you can't manufacture that uh, it comes naturally he was a manager that kept his distance from the players you know he was never going to socialise become mates with us the only person he really got closer to was Tony Adams as his young captain he uh, gave him a little bit more rope than he might have given us but um, he was uh, somebody yeah that you definitely respected you, you wanted to please him, you know, he was Why? one of those managers. Why did you want to please him? Because you'd get a little pat on the back. Because he set such high standards, if you yeah. pleased him, you knew you'd reach those standards. And he set those standards every day of the week in training. And he, want, he, he did famously say, lads, looking back at the end of your careers, you'll think you haven't always enjoyed working with me, but you'd be pleased that you've put the work in because it would have been successful. You can look at the medals... You know, along the way, it might be a pain in the ass what I ask you to do, you know, how hard I am on you, but at the end of it, you've got these medals and, more importantly, these memories to show for it. And he was right. What would you call Anfield in 1989? Your contention and heads up in the book that we've got in front of us, where I'm pinching some of my questions from, your contention is that it is what? The single most iconic moment in English football? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. I can't think. I mean, obviously, Aguero's goal for Manchester City is the second best in Premier, <laughs> in Premier League terms. That's it, and it was it, would you like to reach over and pat him on the head patronisingly as well? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, second best. I mean, I don't see why there's any reasons for argument. It was a standalone game. It had been put to the end of the season because of Hillsborough. We were due to play Liverpool, what was it, in April. So after Hillsborough, that game got put to the end. Everybody else had finished. So it was a standalone game on a Friday night between the two teams, the only two teams capable of winning the title. So that on his own 
takes it away from Manchester City QPR, who were floundering at the bottom of the Premier League. Liverpool, you have to remember what a team they were then. You know, never mind about rarely losing at Anfield. To lose 2-0 was almost unheard of, or to lose by two goals. World-class players, Barnes, Rush, Hansen, Beardsley, you know, Aldridge. Hell of a team, hell of a team. So to go there and to win, and then to get the second all-important goal in the final seconds, it was just the stuff of film scripts. Funnily enough, a couple of films have been made about it. <laughs> Fever Pitch and recently 89, the kind of docu-film. It, it was incredible, it, it was special. Um, everybody does tend to remember, if they've you know, got any connection with football, where they were that night. It was a bit of a JFK moment. And that's why I do think it's the most famous moment in English football history. Aguero's was incredible drama, but... You know, the overall context, who they were playing, and I just don't think it, it gets anywhere near. Um, I think you probably won your argument there. Let's unpick it a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're able to remember, it's a much more sombre question, but did you carry flowers out that night yourself? Yes, we did, yeah. I think it was Ken Fryer, our managing director. I was going to ask whose idea it was. Yeah, I think it was his. So we all had a bouquet of flowers and we went to four corners of the ground and just chose someone to hand those flowers to I gave mine to a lady on the opposite side we got a huge round of applause for that and then we got back into our positions and the huge roar goes up because it's game time you know people have kind of put Hillsborough to the backs of the mines and now we want to see our team win the title now's the time for honesty as much as you believed in yourselves as much as you'd achieved quite special things as a team by then did you believe going at Anfield you personally that you were going to be win by two clear goals and win the title it was a strange one because we went up there in very relaxed manner it was uh, what have we got to lose type attitude and when we went out there I mean George going back to his team talk he pumped us up cleared our minds of what exactly the challenge was and I was confident we could do it and even as the match wore on, as the cop were whistling for the final whistle, I still thought we could do it, which was a bit weird. That's and truly your thought pattern yeah. back then? and a few of my teammates felt the same. I know that. I don't know whether we were deluded or whatever. <laughs> I mean, coming in at half-time, we were disappointed because we'd hardly had an effort on goal. Uh, I think only Baldy's header, that was about it, and we've trooped in heads down. But George has lifted us saying, brilliant, lads, perfect. You know, We've kept the clean sheet, that's the most important thing. Now we want to push on a bit, get that first goal. They'll be even more nervous. They're not themselves as it is. They'll be even more nervous. And we'll get that second goal. He was confident. Whether truly inside him he was, he he claims he was confident, thought we'd actually win by three. But he certainly infused that confidence into us. And we didn't go out thinking, oh, we've got to get two goals, you know, we've got to be adventurous and take risks and that. No. that that's the beauty of his team talks he'd broken it down for you mentally yeah get a foothold yeah. consolidate that don't feel you've got to you know throw men forward don't feel that keep a clean sheet it was kind of keep the situation simmering the first goal you score it and it comes from a free kick it's, as Arsenal are facing it comes in from the right Maybe I'm wrong, and, and I'm presuming when you're writing your autobiography, you've gone back and looked at mm. this game and the goal a little bit, so I'm not fishing in an empty pool. 
Tony Adams' run is quite strange and comical. And what, what was going on there? And not taking anything away from Arsenal's achievement, what was the Liverpool defence doing there? That was like primary school. You, and you, you say that, but no, it's I'm, a well rehearsed move that uh, <laughs> okay. totally right. witted them. Come on. Well, I mean, don't ask me what Tony was doing. He, he, he veered off script quite by quite some distance. I mean, that was an Olympic sprint he does. He, He's obviously he, having fun as well. I mean, I'd like to say he threw himself at the ball, but he was nowhere near the ball. But it was a, it was a routine that we had practised, you know, till we were blue in the face on the training ground, and it never used to work on a match day. And we'd go, oh, Gaffer, do we have to do this again? You know, it never works. But, you know... If that free kick was on the right, Nigel would swing one in. If it was on the left, maybe Brian Marwood with his right foot would swing one in. Um, and there'd be me, Tony and Baldy. One of us, probably Baldy, would peel around the back. Me and Tony would attack the ball. On the night, as you say, Tony just threw himself in. He started 15, 20 metres back, hasn't he? Yeah, and he was kind of just um, a decoy. Uh, <laughs> not that he did it intentionally, but it, it, it just enabled me. Perhaps it created some space for me to slip in. It, it, it did. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Mm. The Liverpool guys, as brilliant as they were, are standing looking around going, well, what's happened? Mm. You're allowed to, I mean, it's a nice header. The delivery's fine. It's 1-0. It's going to make you part of the most historic moment in English football, but... If George, if you defended like that, George would have taken you into London Colony the next day and shot you all. Mm, mm. Well, I think that was probably um, reflective of how Liverpool were that night. They weren't quite themselves. We sensed that after about ten minutes, um, because you know, if you go into a game knowing you can lose one nil, it, it can do funny things to your mind, perhaps. Whereas our minds were pretty clear. So that that was an advantage for us. I think we. We pounced on that, the fact that Liverpool weren't at the best that night. Uh, obviously, the whole Hillsborough thing, the number of games they'd had to play leading up to the finale uh, would have played a part as well. I mean, we played quite a few too, but um, yeah, maybe on another night they would have defended that free kick better. Do you remember the ball in the air? Yeah. Am I being fanciful, or do you remember the ball in the air coming towards you? Yeah, yeah, I do. As I say, I saw, I saw it coming towards me and... I've just tried to get get something on it and help it on its way. I've gone for the left-hand corner and, yeah, worked perfectly. Got a good connection on it, helped it on its way. Whacked into Steve Staunton on the follow-through and kind of gone to celebrate in the far corner with the fans. Was it natural, all natural Alan Smith or some of the tuition that Stroller George gave you in heading which most people won't know about No, George did give me quite a few tips on heading I mean I was a good header of the ball when I came to the club but he was particularly good as a player and he used to take me through some routines and the style of heading you know you've just done it there I mean, you just, he was like a it. chicken the old chicken neck going backwards and forwards and he'd always blow through his lips like that you know head it like this I'm a maker's name keep your eyes open always look at the maker's name as it's coming towards you and of course we'd all take the piss out of him behind his back but uh, we also knew he knew what he was on about and he demonstrated as well because he was a young man then really yeah. early 40s was he um, and he demonstrated heading the ball and he could still do it but you know that, that was always one of my fortes that's just why like I called you, the book you, heads up you guided it in yeah. You don't just, if you're trying to get someone, but in the end, you actually guide it into that bottom right foot. Yeah, there's different over. types of headers, aren't there? But it was kind of, because it was an in-swinger, it was almost swinging away from me. So it wasn't a header you could get some power on and really thud it 
It was it was a helping it on its way type. It was a billiard shot. It was a effort. nice glance. I really liked it. Mm. I still think again. You can just tell me I'm stupid, but I think your part in the second goal, from the way I look at football, was one to be much more proud of. In my opinion, because you talked about George saying, "Don't lose the ball, Alan. You know, don't give it away. Hold it up," and and that maybe that restricted you. In the book, uh, and today, you'll often use phrases about being bored or laborious or not seeing the point or whatever but and maybe it was natural maybe you're going to do it anyway without being coached by George and that ball comes down and uh, Arsenal's right you control it the control itself is, is exquisite but the brain's working and, and you're like oh I know where Mickey Thomas is and I know what I'm going to do with this and although Liverpool still have to make a mistake for him to get through and score the little take and lay off time it and put the ball right where it needs to be for him you can't have done many more precise things no in your career no I think if there's one moment in my career that I had to pick as the best that would be it yes yeah. everything was perfect yeah the touch was perfect and the little flick because I had to do it so quickly and that was me at my best you know I was always known for a silky soft touch a lot of people thought I was left footed I used to practice as a kid so much with my left foot controlling it off the brick wall at the side of our mum and dad's house uh, and I naturally would take it in with my left almost that was a softer foot to control it with as, than my right if I had to take a penalty I'd take it with my right but it came in perfectly Lee fizzed it in to be fair so I had to take a chance on the turn and luckily it worked and um, it, it's just so pleasing on a night where it matters so much that you have a good game, that you, you do what you want to do and you respond to the challenge, you step up and that's gratifying looking back that mm. you know I was able to produce something approaching my best that night. So the brain's whirring all the time. Maybe you tell me that you didn't have to think, that it was instinctive. I don't know, but you know your brain's working. It wasn't just technique that made that happen. Maybe a bit of panic as well, I don't know. The fact I thought, I've, well, I've just got to turn first time here because the whistle's going to go. Um, and then seeing the flash of yellow and blue jersey in my peripheral vision, being Mickey making a, a storming run, just flicked it through. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd had a great season that year. I obviously ended up winning the golden boot. I was, I was flying in terms of confidence, so I felt I could try things like that, and I was confident they'd come off. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Let's say there's a best 11 from your time at Arsenal. Um, You're in it, but you're also leading this exercise. You take one out of that, whatever best 11 you want to call in your era at Arsenal, whichever other 10 bodies there are, and take one player from a subsequent Arsenal era and put him into, into your Arsenal 11 by your choice. Who would you pick and why? Well, it wouldn't be the back five because Seaman and the back four, you know, set in stone. Nobody, Fine. Sol Campbell, Ashley Cole. You know, I couldn't put anybody into that. Um, so... You're looking at Patrick Vieira, I think, and then Henri and Bergkamp. You know, you could throw in Perez if you wanted, but no, I'd I'd say Vieira. And I mean, Henri, he's the greatest player I've ever seen on these shores, so I'd have to put him in there. That's interesting. I just thought he was an amazing player, and he just redefined the art of a striker. How? Well, the hardest thing to do is to put the ball in the back of the net, but just the, the areas he drifted into and. Just how dominant he was from a physical point of view and his self-belief. He, he was just head and shoulders above defenders at that, you know, for a good five, six-year spell. They just couldn't do anything about him. And they knew that, he knew that. I just thought he was amazing. It's interesting that you reached first for Vieira, though, as a name to go on your team. For slightly different reasons, as good a footballer as Patrick was. yeah. I mean, we had fantastic midfielders, you know, Mickey and Paul Davis, Kevin Richardson, but Vieira, you know, he was he just he was a huge figure in the middle of the park, and just those leadership qualities he had, that aura he had, ability to stride forward and get goals. Um, yeah, I think you know he would make a huge difference to any side. When. Um when there's another moment um, coming up in Copenhagen and, and Arsenal win a game that probably for different reasons most people thought might just be beyond them. I, I want to tread delicately here. Spoiler, Alan scores the winner against Parma in Copenhagen, but you don't particularly enjoy it or, or it doesn't give you as I much... enjoyed the goal, but... It doesn't yeah. give you quite the feeling that a winning goal in a European final should give you. Try and explain to people listening who don't know about that what was wrong and what it felt like. Well, it happened fairly quickly, actually. We'd won the league in 91, and then the following season we bought Ian Wright, which I thought was going to be fantastic for me because he was the type of player that you would imagine would gel naturally the way he had with Mark Bright at Crystal Palace. But from day one, it just didn't click. He was such a one-off Brighty. I mean, he was the best finisher I've ever played with. He was just sensational in front of goal. But I talked about George having that set shadow play everyone knew their roles where to go in relation to each other right he would just do his own thing he couldn't be reined in he'd just do his own thing and stick the ball in the back of the net so George had to step back and go well okay I'm just going to let him get on with it here and we're going to try and play to his strengths which didn't particularly play to mine but it affected me in a way that it should never have affected me to that extent my confidence in front of goal just fell off a cliff I don't know. I mean, I say in the book, I was maybe affected by Wrighty's kind of soaring self-assurance. He he came in like a hurricane. He was such a big character, noisy, 
you know, he, he dominated the dressing room and, you know, I mean, I'd won the golden boot in the league twice. There's no way I should have been uh, intimidated. But in a way I was, which is a bit embarrassing. It's, it is now to, to, to admit it, but uh, I was. And in training, I was stumbling over chances. I'd normally, you know, eaten up in my sleep and, and, you know, that went on to match days and my goal tally dropped alarmingly. I mean, I wasn't getting as many chances. We'd, we were playing a bit more of a direct style over the top to right. He was always on the shoulder, bursting through and, and scoring. So he didn't play with so much whip. There weren't so many crosses coming in. But even so, I mean, at the time, I kind of privately blamed Ian for it. I think he's come in and, and spoiled the status quo. Uh, and he and he's he's kind of affected my game, but uh, you know I should have looked at myself more and done more to to cure it. Really, I did go and see a sports psychologist. And it didn't do any good whatsoever. Really, um, I came back none the better. And this lasted three years, but the final three years of my career, mm. and it was an awful way really for it to dribble to a close. People don't see it so much. They go, "Oh, Smudger, he's not scoring as many goals," but he's doing his bit for the team which I had to try and do otherwise I wouldn't be in the team but it was just a kind of gritting of the teeth let's just get through this let's just try and um, contribute something to the team effort and that's what I tried to do but it, it just felt like such hard work that it was, there was no enjoyment there none at all Are you one of these people that to some extent you're, you're, either your self-respect or your relationship with yourself is, is based on Am I succeeding, or am I am I doing what I am programmed to do? Mm. Score goals, for example. Did, is that was that part of the, the the turmoil that that you're fighting through in your head when you're stumbling over chances? You know, I've always been somebody that has lacked a bit of self belief. So when things do go wrong, it takes me longer to come out through the other side. You know, I've had some goal droughts. And, you know, it, it has been difficult to get out, but when I am scoring and not thinking about it, you know, I've gone on amazing sprees. But, yeah, I think that lack of self-belief is like a recurring theme through my career, through my subsequent career as well, maybe, when it comes to co-commentary and that. Um, I never thought I'd be, good, I'd be good at that when it was suggested. Uh, which, you know, he's classic me. Um, thinking, oh, they don't want to listen to my whining, drummy drawl, you know, uh, just my voice. But I, I've always had the ability to adapt and know what's required, and I've been able to do that in commentary. But in in football, um, yeah, I did. Um, I did sometimes fail to realise what a good player I was, mm. and I had a lot of self doubt when I was struggling, and that's what made it harder to come through the other side. We became a cup team, successful cup team. So in a way. George wouldn't have been too displeased or he would have been unhappy we were no longer title contenders but we were still successful so we were kind of stumbling along in that fashion really that's when 1-0 to the Arsenal was born because mm. Wrighty would score it and the back four would keep a clean sheet you know in, in our title years that song was never sung but yeah it, I, I just it's an eternal regret that I could never fix that problem How much have you talked this through with Ian subsequently? Oh, I had a chat with him, uh, not face-to-face. He was over in Ireland at the time. But, I, no, I just had a chat on the phone and he, he was as good as gold. You know, he, 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 he said, oh, I'm sorry, Smudge. I said, it's not your fault, mate. It was my fault. And I'm glad I did have that chat. Yeah. And I'm glad I wrote it in the book because it was something that 
had always been inside me yeah. uh, that I'd never got out into the open and it was something Arsenal fans would not have had a clue about and yeah I mean I get on great with Ian now um, there was always that unspoken kind of distance between us at the time there was that awkwardness I'd say because he must have expected a lot more from me coming into the club I certainly expected more from me at the time um, so the fact it, it wasn't clicking it, it was yeah uh, the elephant in the room, really. You know, for a club of Arsenal stature to have only won two European trophies is both bemusing and, and frankly, if, if I can use firm words, it's atrocious. Mm. If I was an Arsenal man, director, fan, player, journalist, I'd be, I'd be scandalised, I'd be furious. Because really, quite honestly, for a club of that tradition and wealth and ideas and talent over the years, there should be two or three more, mm. I think. And the last man to score a winning goal in a European final for Arsenal was you. But raise all of this because you said that at the time, even triumphing in adversity, even scoring the winning goal in a European final, wasn't enough to remove what had been going on for the previous three years and that you'd have swapped 20 goals a year Mm. for the winning goal in the final. I think a lot of people will find that strange. Why was that Copenhagen triumph regarded as such an extraordinary victory? Set the scene, paint it. Well, Ian got booked in the semi-final against Paris Saint-Germain, so he was suspended for the final, so straight away that was going to be a handicap for us. He'd been our top scorer. And then when he got to the, uh, when he got to the week of the final, I mean, John Jensen had already done his crew shirt, so he was out. Martin Keown failed the late fitness test. Martin, who was playing midfield at the time. He was, play, he was, yeah, he was down to playing midfield, yeah. And George tried to persuade him on the day. They, George and Gary Lewin felt he probably could play, but Martin didn't think he I could. I sensed there was a debate at the time. I think there was a debate at the time, yeah. And um, I used that as a euphemism. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, we were really up against it. I mean, we looked at that Palmer team. We trained on the pitch the night before. We were first out onto the park and pitch, and we did our bit, and we, we've strolled off laughing and joking and the, the Palmer players are waiting there you know immaculate in their yellow and blue tracksuits uh, all Italian sides do look immaculate don't they and I, I think we just got the feeling they were looking us up and down as if to say who's this show we're playing so yeah straight away we thought we had this will show mentality uh, and somebody also there was the podium was there and on it was written Palmer winners Palmer no and somebody mentioned it but nobody pointed out that on the other side was winners <laughs> Arsenal so it all, it all little went, twists of fear yes, man honestly it all went towards firing us up so you know our midfield it was a 4-3-3 because George would change for Europe compared to domestic games he would switch to 4-3-3 after we got stung in the European Cup against yeah. Benfica yeah against Nine a very one. good Benfica side very good team yeah. Stefan Schwartz if I'm not wrong Maybe Rui Costa. Isaiah. Isaiah scored. Yeah. If you look through that team, yeah. that's still the bulk of a team that had reached the Champions League final. Yeah. Well coached, very dangerous in a break, technical. Yeah, they're very good, yeah. And George felt we got outnumbered in midfield, so he, he went to this 4-3-3, which made us more uh, I'm sorry, I've got to be boring and stop, you know. Hold on, that's wrong. 4-3-3 is less than 4-4-2 in midfield. <laughs> Help the listener. Seriously. Yeah, well, obviously... 4-3-3 means three in midfield more centrally and, mm-hmm. and the two lads wide of me, whether it was Wrighty, Merce, Kevin Campbell, two from three, would funnel back, make it a five in midfield and I would be ploughing the low and furrow, 
holding it up, waiting for support. So 433 in that context is something of a misnomer because 433 in Cruyff for Guardiola speaks, yes. although the, the three do different things than just pin width, it's not a 451. No, no. But well, yeah, I mean, obviously, Merce and Wrighty, if they were the boys either side, they are very much attack minded players. But when we didn't have the ball, they were expected to become defenders instantly, which Kevin and uh, Merce were in, in Copenhagen that night. But, you know, our central midfield was Ian Sally, Paul Davis, and Stevie Morrow. You know, Ian Sally and, and Stevie Morrow, with all due respect, were not exactly regular first teamers. Paul Davis. Classy midfielder, top man. And we're thinking, well, <laughs> Zola, Asprilla, Thomas Brolin, you know, half of Italy's World Cup side. Bucci and goals. That summer. Krippa. They all went, didn't they? They, they were very good. They were very good. The holders. Holders, yeah. Holders, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And in uh, Nevio Scala, uh, he, he was a top coach he at the was, time. He was, he was, yeah. Uh, so, the tractor, farmer. Was he? Yes. It's an irrelevant detail, but it's true. No, don't mind that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we went into it thinking we're going to do well here, lads, to, to get anything out of it. But I remember going out for the warm-up and it was just like hybrid. It was just full of red and white banners, scarves, flags. Gave us a great reception for our warm-up and that lifted us. We went back into the dressing room thinking, come on, boys, you know, we've got a great chance here. We've got wonderful support. It's funny psychology, isn't it? Yeah. That, that just added a little millimetre to yeah. focus. We've got to do this for them. The- yeah. The, the were there weren't they sneering at us the podium turned one way or the other yeah. tiny little things making a yeah. difference yeah it was funny I don't know if Italian fans kind of historically don't travel that much in numbers I don't know there weren't too many like there were three or four thousand Parma fans which just seemed odd for a European fine but uh, yeah it had the feeling of a home game really and I think we felt with our back five being at its pomp if we could snatch a goal would always be in with a great chance and that's exactly how it turned out um, I mean David Seaman had had pain killing injections in his ribs I didn't know that yeah so he was kind of going through the pain barrier and he made a couple of saves the one, the one where he reaches back over his head yeah. to put over the bar that must have, the ribs yeah. must have been screaming at him at that was, stage he, he had a little grimace and he had another jab at half time yeah we really had to hang in there Rode our luck. I mean, Lee Dixon could have easily given a penalty away and they could have How much of a penalty was that out of 100? Yeah, 101. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, looking at it, now Dicko just laughs about it. He can't it, believe it. Can't you can, believe the it the ball the goes in a trajectory which is impossible if he's touched yeah, it. Yeah. And the, the, I forget who it was on the deck. I don't know if it's Melly or whoever, the Parma man yeah. on the deck. It's, it's floored. No, it's, well, we had the luck that night. It was Enter the Dragon, the, the actual yeah. tackle, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Pure Bruce Lee. Anyway, but, you know, we didn't give it. They missed a few chances that they might have otherwise taken on a different night. And, you know, I got our goal, and and then it was kind of back to the wall. I can't remember us having another chance, really. No. So it was a question of me trying to hold it up as much as I could, give it, the rest of the boys a respite, you know, a break. And trying to see it through. Mm. But I still go back to the idea that something about what you'd suffered the three previous years, the ultimate of what every schoolboy dreams of, scoring when you go in the European final, mm. wasn't quite enough to erase the difficulties that you were having. No. Or, or to compensate, is a, is a better word, maybe. Yeah. I mean, God, I mean, to have Copenhagen on your CV is brilliant. And as you say, Arsenal having only won two European trophies and to score the winning goal, so many people talk to me about it still. 
But fact was, I was in a real trough at the time. You know, you want to be enjoying your football um, day in, day out. And you want to be um, producing your best or something approaching it. And having set those standards, you know, I, I dipped so much. So, yeah, it was a port in a storm. It was great on the night. But even at the end, you know, it is bittersweet because you're thinking, if only I could produce that kind of performance more regularly, wouldn't life be so much better? So it didn't compensate. Yes, I'd have much rather have had... It's three. very, very sad, that. It, it really is. All that's left for me to do is to give everybody a heads up. Alan's book is very good. He wrote it himself. It's his life. He's given us a little taste of it just now on the big interview. For that, thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it. I hope we haven't bored you. Not, not at all. I hope I haven't bored you. No, I hope I've told you something you didn't know. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.